0: You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit largerstory.com. Without ever having to have the courage to move into a world where we're not sure of ourselves. I've got to find some way to live my life that doesn't require courage. My bottom line, and the bottom line of all depraved men, is At the core of my being, I want somebody to relieve me of the need to have to move courageously into my world. I want somebody to relieve me of the need to move courageously into my world. Somebody's got to take that away from me, that responsibility to be courageous. I don't like that responsibility. I want some way to get away from the fact that at the core of my being, I I, I really feel awful sometimes and I can't seem to get rid of it and rather than somehow courageously moving on the basis of what is within me believing that God is somehow good and therefore moving into my world I want to get away from that some of you at the basic seminar have heard me tell the story when I was um, I think in 8th grade remember the story I tell about the time I took the basketball and ran down the court and put it in the wrong hoop remember that? What's an 8th grade kid learn from that? Better not grab a basketball again unless you're pretty sure how to handle it. Now what becomes my strategy for living? Well, I'll only take on responsibilities that don't require much courage and there's very little risk. Rachel and I were talking just last week about um, the fact that there are times that I can uh, just seem to switch back and forth, whether it's multiple or not, I'm not sure. Where I can seem to switch back and forth from feeling aggressive and, and moving into my world and then kind of without, a, without much of a notice, uh, I, I can somehow turn into a retreat pattern where I'm rather angry and I don't do that often, you understand. I'm far more mature than what that story might indicate. And I was trying to think about what, 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 what is going on here? And you know, a memory occurred to me And I bet my parents will recall. I was about four years old when this took place. We'll see if they recall this. Maybe three or four. I forget how old I was. We were living at my grandparents' home in uh, Germantown, Pennsylvania, part of Philadelphia. And as a little three or four-year-old boy, I was in the bathroom. And I had somehow the door was locked without my arranging to lock it. Somehow the door locked by itself and I pulled the door shut or something of this nature. And after I had finished and wanted to leave the bathroom, I couldn't get the door unlocked. I, opened the, I tried to open the door, and it wouldn't open, and I didn't quite understand the lock mechanism and how to turn. It was a simple little thing. Just turn the business here underneath it, and I could get out. Do you recall this? Remember this? Mother doesn't. Dad, do you recall this? You got on a ladder to come up on the second floor of the home. And do uh, you remember that now? Yeah. He, I mean, I was in there screaming. Three-year-old kid. I couldn't. I was going to be in this room for the rest of my life. I was imprisoned. <laughs> you know how little kids feel. And I'm going to be the rest of my life, and I can't get out. And there's nothing I can do to get out. And, uh, and, and Dad ran outside. I mean, I made a commotion. It was like the siren in my home. The whole neighborhood was going off. And, and Dad went to the garage, and he got a ladder, and he put it up against the, it was on the second floor of the home, put a ladder up to come up to the window, and was able to kind of push open the window. And, and just at that time, as he was coming into the window, I was fiddling with the thing, and I turned it, and it opened. How would you guess I felt? Pretty, pretty strong. I can handle things pretty well. Is there not something inside of me, which maybe from an event like that might be a symbol, not a cause, but a symbol of don't put me in a position where I'm going to have to figure out how to get out of this door. Don't put me in that kind of a position. I'd rather have someone else take care of me without disrespecting me. I wonder if that's there within me. I wonder if I'm somehow saying, I don't want to have to be responsible for certain things. About a year ago, the central prayer that I began being consumed with for myself is, Lord, would you release a little more of me? There are a lot of things I just don't want to tackle. A lot of times that something comes up and I just want to back off. I don't want to fiddle with the lock because I'm going to make a fool out of myself. And rather than courageously moving into my world, there's some mood of kind of backing away within me that that is my mechanism for survival. I don't want to have to be all that God calls me to be as a man. You don't want to have to be all God calls you to be as a man or as a woman. I'll make it. But God, you're no help. And you people go to help me, but you're not, so you're no good. Well, I know you're kind of good, but you're not good enough and... The dickens with you You can't deal with me at the core of my being. I'm totally alone, so I hate you. Well, it must be my fault. I know I'm wrong. I'm so immature. I can't handle things. Oh, for goodness sakes, how do I make it? I'll find some way. I'll pretend I don't care. I'll kill my longings. I won't take any risks at all. I won't do anything that maybe I'll make a fool out of myself at. And I will, the last element in my efforts to make it, I will find resources within me that will give me something from you, without involving significant risk. I'm going to find resources within me. I'm going to find something I have within me that when I use it, life seems to work. Maybe a sense of humor. Maybe a tough, delinquent spirit as a 13-year-old kid from a bad background. I'm going to find some resources within me that when I use them will get something to work. And that becomes that becomes my style of relating. I'm going to survive in some form, and that effort to survive becomes my style of relating. I'm going to now approach my life in a particular way. Let me define style of relating for you, very very simply. What does it mean when we talk about identify a person's style of relating? Two parts to it, very simply, and with this we'll break. Style of relating. Whatever we consistently hide to preserve ourselves from pain. Whatever we consistently hide to preserve ourselves from pain. The second element, whatever we consistently present to get something of what we hope will satisfy. Whatever we consistently hide to preserve ourselves from pain, whatever we consistently present to get what we want now the question becomes as you listen to Ken and Joan interact you listen to their presenting problem does this fallen structure begin to give you some tools with which to listen does it begin to give you something to expose something to make known something that needs to be disrupted you want to topple that whole system Now, you see, if you start on the outside and just at a behavioral level, try to improve a person's style of relating, you're not getting down to the core. If all you do is take care of self-hatred with lots of affirmation, you're not getting down to the core. If all you do is explore deep dynamics in terms of how a needy child comes to a parent and ends up getting hated by that parent, and the child now feels a profound rage to them, if all you do is interpret deep dynamics, you're not getting down to the core. Something very basic needs to be disrupted in each of us before meaningful change can take place. I'll develop that further after a little break. Let's break. Pardon? Yeah, the root problem is a failure to believe that God is good. And I just, I'm i just hoping as we talk about that, as you hear that said in a variety of ways, that you, you don't write that off as a simplistic kind of a nice bunch of religious rhetoric. To me, it seems to be a whole lot more important than that. What I'm I'm suggesting sounds, to me at least, as a rather radical sort of a thought, and you may or may not hear it that way, but I'm suggesting that when a fellow comes in to see you and says that, look, I've never told anybody this before, but I've got to let you know I really struggle with homosexual impulses. I've been married now for 20 years, and um, my wife doesn't know about it. I don't know if I should tell her or not. What do you think? So well, I let her know that I'm stuck with homosexual impulses. I don't know why I'm homosexual. Um, I haven't yielded to homosexual temptations for a number of years, but let me tell you, it's a very real thing within me. Um, we were in Germany last summer, sometime, but the last summer I think it was, and uh, did, a, did, a, did a conference for OCS, the Overseas Christian Servicemen's Centers, and one of the missionaries who works with American servicemen. Uh, in in Germany, said to me, the field director in this particular part, came to me in tears. And and they were angry tears. What he was saying was, I'm working with five servicemen now, five guys that are in their early 20s, all of whom are Christians, they love the Lord, they're serious about their faith, uh, but each one of them struggles with homosexual desires, and they have begged God to get rid of their homosexual desires. And he said to me, do you know what it's like? And I don't, and he didn't either. But he said, try to visualize what it's like for these guys every night to go to their barracks, to go into the community showers, and to struggle with lust. And to pray to God, God, will you give me some victory over this thing? And a lot of these guys, because they love the Lord and they're doing their best, they're exercising self-discipline, they're trying very hard, spending time in the Word, they're doing all the kind of things which they know to do in the hopes that somehow this will give them the power to resist the homosexual impulses. And meanwhile, they're consumed by it. Now, what are you going to do with that kind of, as Dan put it, the dark side of desire? What are you going to do with that kind of thing? Do you really believe that the problem is that the desires are not strong enough? That's what Dan said. Do you believe that there are some desires that are deeper than whatever the homosexual desires might be that somehow have been killed off, that need to be resurrected? And that if all you do is somehow try to encourage these guys to be involved in accountability groups and encourage these guys to, to spend more time in the Word and to trust God in prayer? As this missionary was talking to me, he said, that's all I know to do with these guys, and I'm just getting so frustrated. And I think my next sentence to him was along these lines, and pretty ticked off at God. And he said, yeah, because these are sincere Christian men who are struggling terribly with these horribly perverted desires, and it's just eating them alive, and I don't know how to help them. Now, what do you tell that missionary guy in dealing with his, with his counselees, with his servicemen? What I'm wanting to suggest, as clearly as I know how, and I grant you it will be a little bit muddled as we develop some of this, these, this new thinking in the past little bit for the IBC team, what I'm trying to develop is the very central thought that whatever the problem, when that serviceman comes to me and says, I'm struggling with homosexuality, that I'm going to take the position that there's some things involved with this that I think a lot of people would, would, would not think are really involved. I'm going to take the position that something more needs to be done than breaking the bondage of the demonic influence that is yielding this homosexual lust. Might that be involved in certain cases? I'm not willing to oppose that and say that never could be involved. I'm certainly not going to argue against the fact that demonic involvement is very cooperative with all these wrong directions and that there really is a spiritual battle here. And I'm certainly going to insist, as you all would say with me, that when you get involved in the real battle for these people's souls, when you get involved in the real battle, it always gets messy. There's nothing clean, nothing simple about it. You get down to real tough stuff. But what's the tough stuff you get down to? I think it's more than just somehow a a direct confrontation with a demonic power that is yielding this uncontrollable lust. Something far more is going on than that. Something far more is going on than just the requirement for self-discipline. Something far more is going on than just some need for affirmation because this gentleman has a history of a dysfunctional background. The shame is very deep and he's he's found some addictive disorder that somehow relieves the pain and satisfies the longing and gives him some good feelings inside and that somehow we need to affirm him so this is no longer required, fill him up legitimately, so he no longer has to be filled illegitimately. That's not the model that we suggest at all. We don't think it's going to get to it. Nor do we think the model, now listen to this point, nor do we think what's going to get to it is to interpret all the dynamics beneath the surface of this guy. What I want to do is spend the next few minutes giving you an illustration of why I think that the root of that serviceman's problem really is a failure to believe that God is good. I want to just kind of go through that little circle chart that I gave you and just give you a little sample understanding of how I think presenting problems, whether it's homosexuality, whatever it might be, how presenting problems really grow out of that four, of that circle structure starting with I hate God, I, I need you, I hate you, I hate me, but I will survive, I'll find a way to relate, and the result of all those things coming out becomes homosexuality in particular cases. Let me just trace for you how I think that, how I think that works see if this kind of makes sense to you. To substantiate our point, that you're not really dealing with the issues of the soul until you get down to the person's core dynamic with God. So much counseling never gets to the vertical dimension, other than in some sort of superficial way. So much counseling never gets to the vertical dimension of your relationship with God, other than in some kind of a superficial way. We think there's a tremendous battle that develops out of the initial contention, the initial suspicion that God is not very good. Here's a young boy that comes into the world. This is now your client, the 22-year-old American GI, and you're the missionary involved in helping this kid, who's a Christian, deal with the homosexual impulses that he feels. And by the way, as you get involved in this battle, don't expect, at least not normally, real instant victory. you got a long-term struggle on your hands. You've got a structure on your hands that when we talk about disrupting the structure and tearing it down, that's not something that kind of gets done. You know, in ten sessions you've disrupted, then the next ten you build up and boom, everything's fine. You all know better than that, obviously, that this is going to be a long-term problem. This guy might be struggling with this 20 years from now at some level. But is there some movement that you can make in this guy's life to provide him with some significant joy in his manhood? Can you help him realize that the root of dealing with his addiction to homosexuality is not simply to overcome the homosexuality, but somehow to release his manhood as he relates to others in a way that he cannot release unless he believes God is good? Does all that kind of thinking make sense to you? Let me see if I can develop it for you a little bit. Here, this 22 year old serviceman comes to you as homosexual. What are you going to do? Here's how I suggest you think. This isn't what you do, maybe initially, but here's how you think. The first thing a counselor must do is think in certain categories. And what I'm giving you tonight is a fallen structure that I think yields certain categories for thinking. I'm going to make the assumption that this 22-year-old man is someone who was designed to move into his world with courage. I'm going to make the assumption that he's a unique individual who is depraved, who came into the world with a suspicion that God is not terribly good. He came into the world, therefore... Basically, with no natural inclination to trust the Lord. Nobody trusts the Lord naturally. There's no one who trusts the Lord, not even one, the Bible says. No one seeks after God, and yet we're all told to seek after God earnestly, but nobody does it naturally. So here's somebody who's not seeking after God, but although he's not seeking after God, the only one who really could release his manhood and affirm his dignity and satisfy his longings and give him the hope of what's yet to come in the next world... Although the only one that can do all that is God, he basically, as a natural being, there's something in his blood, in his spiritual blood, if you will, the virus from Adam, that looks at God and says, no, I I don't believe you're good enough to handle this one. I better turn over here. And this is a little baby. Now, that's not being put in verbal words, obviously, but that's the flow of his energy. He now turns to his world and he says, someone needs to do for me what, 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 what needs to be done. I know that what, I, what, what is true about me can only be satisfied in the context of relationship. I've given up on him. That's a given. He's not good. Let me turn to you. And, and what are you going to do for me? I need you. Come through for me. I long to be released as a man. I long to know that I can move into my world as a man. I can be a man of courage. I can know what to do when things are tough. When I feel totally lost, there still is some resource within me that can move. I long to know all that. Dad, will you affirm that? Dad, will you help release it? Mother, will you you treat me in certain ways that get all that taken care of? I want to know I'm a self. I want to know I'm a man. Will you do all that for me? You're irrelevant, so you do it for me. All right, that's the little boy coming into the world. That's a 22-year-old serviceman sitting in front of you. Now, his background is going to be a little bit different than mine. I don't happen to struggle with homosexuality. You may or you may not. The backgrounds are going to be different. Why do some people struggle with it and some other people don't? Well, there are different kinds of things that happen. As he turns to the I need you people, which are always going to be the initial parenting people, whether it's the actual parents, whoever's involved in caretaking, what is going to be very common in the background of the homosexual, that is all going to be activated within him because he's turning to these people with desperate intensity, since God is no longer any good in his mind, And now with that foundation he turns here and he requires certain things, but what he gets is this. And this is in patterned form. There'll be a lot of variety to this, but it's something like this. When he turns toward whatever male figure there is in his life, perhaps his dad, obviously, there's going to be some form either of abandonment in a rather significant sense or demeaning. The little boy is either going to be abandoned where the father's going to spend no time with, maybe take off literally. He's going to abandon his responsibilities to move toward boy as a man. There'll be no model of strength. When you think about your dads, gentlemen, do you all, do you all see a level of courage and strength that makes your tongue kind of hang out? And you want so much to, to be strong like that? I wonder what my boys think when they think of me. When they think of me, do they look at a dad and that um, that was a model of some of, of handling some pretty tough stuff, and does that somehow give them the courage to believe that maybe that's in manhood and that can happen for them, or, or if I abandon them in some form, has there been a significant abandonment either by a failure to model the kind of strength that they want, <clears throat> or just a strong moving away from them? The second thing that a father often does with the background of the, the struggle of homosexuality is the boy is somehow demeaned. You can't handle it. Here's a tough situation. I don't expect you to handle this well at all. You're going to foul it up. Some sort of abandonment, some sort of demeaning. As the child turns to father, that's what he gets. I need you, dad, and I get abandoned and or demeaned. I turn to mother, and what happens? More often than not, there is some wide variety here, but more often than not, the background of the homosexual he's going to feel very powerfully used by his mother. He's going to feel rather powerfully used by his mother. She's going to be requiring him to be something that he cannot be. There's going to be a turning to the boy, whether it's explicitly in a sexually abusive kind of way or an emotional kind of an attachment. There's going to be some requiring of the boy to be something which developmentally situationally, he just can't be. And he's going to learn in response to interaction with his mother that I just don't have what it takes. I can't function in a way that does for you what needs to be done. The other thing the mother might often do in the background of the homosexual is to enjoy tender parts of that boy without any level of deep respect for his maleness and enjoyment of his tenderness an enjoyment of his sensitivity, of his softness, of his kindness, without any deep respect. Mother's going to be depending on the child's tenderness to give something for her soul, and he's going to be feeling very illegitimately enjoyed in a very perverted kind of way, and wonder, why is it that that part of me which I intuitively sense is there as a man, nobody seems to respect or to want or to value or to believe in? I need you, and that's what I get. As a result of that, what is boy going to say? Simply because, primarily because, he's a boy. He's a male. He's going to turn to mother and dad and essentially say, I hate you. What you've done to me is intolerable. You allow me to feel no legitimate sense of power. You cut off within me any confidence that I can do anything as a man. I hate you for what you've done to me. You now owe me. You're obligated. Since you've cut off any potential that I have to function as a man, Dad, you've never affirmed me in any way. You've abandoned me. You've put me down. You've demeaned me. Mother, you've used me. You've never allowed me to feel like I can move with a courageous independence into somebody's life and be respected for it and valued for it and make a difference. I've never felt I had that. I hate you for that. And as a result, I really believe that you owe me something. Now that I've had cut off from me all potential for functioning in a way which leads to joy, what do you owe me? What does child say the parent owes him? How about something obvious and simple like total care? Since you've rendered me impotent, you now are responsible to make me um, feel totally taken care of. Because I've got nothing. You've stripped me of any dignity, any sense of power. You now owe me total care. How's he gonna feel toward himself as a result of all that? Can't stand myself. Can't stand my neediness. Can't stand my powerlessness. Why can't I make something happen? Why is there not something within me that when I exercise it, that something good takes place, there's nothing there? What's the matter with me? I hate it. I'm gonna find some way to make it. I'll find something to give that is still left, that has not been taken from me. I'll take no risks. I've learned I fail terribly. But I'll find something within me to give that is still available, where I'll have no risk involved. And I'm going to develop a style of relating, therefore, that is going to require no courage and no strength. I'm going to start moving toward my world without any real integrity. I'm going to give tenderness, kindness, niceness. I'm going to give competence, talent. I'm going to give anything I have to offer that's going to get something from you, but it's going to require of me no courage whatsoever because I don't believe I have that. Now, with that dynamic pattern going on inside of that child, it seems to me that the shift from that pattern into homosexuality is often going to depend on some level of, of seduction or arousal opportunity. That particular boy, when there's some feeling of intimacy that develops with a fellow boy or an older Boy Scout leader or a youth leader who in some form seduces him, something inside is going to feel like it's finally come together. I'm going to feel a profound sense of relief. I no longer need to face the terror of this world having to be strong, I found a way to feel some level of completion, some level of uh, of satisfaction within my soul that doesn't require what I no longer have. Now, what's the foundation of that whole thing? How are you going to help that person? What are you going to do if that's the person sitting in front of you? Are you going to simply interpret all those dynamics? What are you going to do? What I'm hoping that you can see as I go through that simple thing is that the root of the whole business really is a failure to turn to God and to say, because you're good, I don't need to turn to others with a desperate intensity. Therefore, your major job as a counselor is somehow to, and we'll talk about what the somehow means later, but to somehow address to get down through all those different layers, if you will, all those circles that I drew, to get down through all those layers to somehow come to the realization that that man, that 22-year-old man, is somebody who has struggles that are far deeper than self-hatred, somebody who has struggles that are far deeper than self-control or lack of it, somebody who has struggles that are far deeper than perverted sexual urges. Here's a person who ultimately is furious at God, and believes that there's nothing that God is providing him that he really needs, and he really holds it against God. Until you get down to that level, I'm suggesting that you're really not going to be dealing with the problems in the human personality very deeply. What you and I are wanting to do, and let me sound very idealistic here, what you and I suggest are wanting to do is to find some way to replace the fallen structure with a godly structure. What's a godly structure look like? We're trying to find some way to replace a fallen structure with a godly structure. And let me just say it rather simply. The the, the the difference between a godly structure and a fallen structure can be put by contrasting the four circles that I or the many circles that I drew a little bit ago. Can't get four circles out of my head. At the core of the fallen structure is the suspicion that God is not good, therefore I hate him. At the core of the godly structure is what? What words did you put there? Not I hate God, obviously. The godly structure basically says what? How about I worship God? A lot of words could be put there, I suppose. I love God, I adore God, but how about just I worship God? On what grounds? Why did Adam not worship God on the basis of the revelation that he had received? There was a dimension about God's character, I argued this morning, that was not made known, which when is made known, worship is the inevitable result. I worship God. Worship God for what? Ultimately, bottom line, for the kind of God he is as revealed in his grace, and I'll never know that until I understand what his grace has to overcome for him to get to have a relationship with me. In other words, there's going to have to be a focus not on the fact that I've been let down, not on the fact that I've been victimized, but there's going to have to be a focus in the fact that I've blown it, I've affronted him, I've come to him and said, you're not enough, I'm going to make it on my own, I've rebelled against you, and after having done all that, you still pursue me. On the basis of that, I worship you. You'll never help a person to replace I hate you with I worship you until the notion of sin is understood as a far more significant problem than the issue of shame or woundedness. I hate God changes to I worship God. And obviously, by the way, this, rather, this is too obvious to say, but let me say it anyhow, that um, we're not talking about shifting from the fallen structure to the godly structure. We're talking about a long process. We're talking about a process that defines what sanctification is all about. We're talking about a process that when it's complete, we're glorified. The struggle continues in my life. The struggle continues in your life. But I want to be moving more and more toward this. I hate God. I worship God. I need you to what? No longer do I need you in that desperate intensity kind of a way. But rather than that, what would be the, the godly structure? What would you put there? A lot of good words could be done. I I want you. That could, I reach out to you in level of ministry. That could be even a little higher level perhaps. But I think I'd be willing to say that there's something in me that really does long for the kind of involvement from you that, that when you give it to me is just wonderful. Nothing's wrong with that. Nothing's wrong with Ken wanting to kiss his wife and having his wife turn and kiss him back. Nothing's wrong with him enjoying that. Nothing's wrong with my turning to my wife and when she enjoys me feeling good about that. That's not unmanly. That's just kind of normal. That's kind of the fun of having a good marriage. Kind of the fun of having a good friend. I do want you. There's something in me that longs to get a certain response from you, but in a very fundamental level, I don't need you. Therefore, I'm intact, with or without, your input to me. A godly structure... They're saying what Paul said in Philippians 4. I'm very grateful, Philippians, for what you've done for me now that I'm in jail. But let me be very clear. If you didn't give it to me, I'd have been all right because I'm content with whatever God brings into my life. I don't desperately, fanatically need you. I certainly long for certain things from you. And when it comes, I find it to be a very wonderful experience. But I don't need you. I want you. care about you. I'm for you. But I don't need you. As a result of being able to say I want you versus I need you then you can shift from saying I hate you to to something very different and here's a word that will sound so idealistic to those of you who are involved in some difficult marriages and difficult relationships what does it mean to accept one another as God for Christ's sake accepts us how many of you get mad at your clients a couple hands go up sure yeah, (laughs) all of you do at times don't you I do What does it mean to accept somebody? I would suggest it really is impossible to meaningfully accept another human being so long as you're not sure God is very good. As long as I'm not sure that God really is there for me the way I need him to be there for me, that he really is good in the richest sense of that word, there's no way that I can accept you unless you meet certain criteria. And when you respond to me in ways that I don't like, I just don't accept you. I can pretend I do. I can, I can say nice things. I can mouth words. But haven't you all been in a situation where you're just so mad as hops at somebody and you just try to say such nice things and it just comes out so hollow? You really don't accept them at all. How do you get from, I really don't accept you, I hate you, to a very meaningful version of, I really do accept you. With all your foibles, with all the ways you hurt me, yeah, you hurt me bad, And I'm going to love you in a way that's going to be tough for both of us, maybe. I'm not going to sit here and just play dead, because I'm not dead anymore. As a matter of fact, I'm more aware than ever of how much I long for certain things. I'm far more alive, and therefore my pain is all the greater, because I'm no longer killing my longings. I know how much I want what I don't have, but I have God ultimately, so I'm intact. And when you don't give me what I want, it really is tough. And when you hurt me that way and you step on my toe, I'm going to say ouch real loud. I'm no longer going to be embarrassed to say ouch but you're going to sense that I'm still somehow for you. I'm not requiring something different from you. Every time I require something of you, you hate me for it. Whether you're my son or my wife or my husband, I accept you, says the godly structure, in place of I hate you. And now from I hate me, how do you replace that? If the fallen structure says I hate me in a very defensive kind of a way, And the core of the I hate me really is a rage towards somebody else. Now that I'm worshiping God, I'm wanting you and caring about you, accepting you. What is my attitude toward me? A lot of words might fit there. What would would you choose? In a godly structure. What's your fundamental attitude toward yourself? Heard a word over here? All right, respect for myself. I think I could buy into that as a good word. Other kind of words. Pardon? Self-acceptance, that I accept myself? I think those things are kind of there. In my own thinking, they're not, they're not central. I think they're important. I don't want to demean them. I think they're good answers, but that's not what I would say is central. And maybe I'm wrong in my thought here, but let's think about it together for a few minutes. Joy. Kind of a humble joy. What do you mean by humble? So rather than kind of... Um, finding some basis for being able to look in the mirror and say, I accept who I am, although that I think will be a derivative and a good thing, that the more fundamental thing is going to be humility. And I would argue for that. And I would say that what needs to be done as I live my life, and this can be overstated badly, so don't hear this too strongly, but the words that I have when I think about a godly structure is, um, is I judge me. So I understand that there's a sense in which Paul said, I don't judge myself at all. There's a lot of context for that. But I would argue that what needs to be said is that what I'm really going to deal with is not your sin but mine. What I'm going to deal with as the root to self-acceptance, as the root to identity in Christ, is to realize that the basis of my identity in Christ is the mercy God has shown me. Therefore, when I interact with my wife or a friend and there's tensions and there's problems, what what I'm going to do as I live my life is I'm going to assume that whenever there's a difficulty, not that it's my fault and an I hate me sense of the word, but rather I'm aware that I always have my contribution to make to the problem. And I can't deal with your contribution. But I can deal with mine. And I'm willing to stand before the Lord and have the word of God expose me. It's a sharp two-edged sword. And what it does, it exposes me before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's Hebrews 4.13. And the word for exposing me or laying me bare, that's what it says. The word of God lays me bare. I'm willing to be laid bare before the scriptures. The idea of that word laid bare in the Greek, it's a word that I'm told that was used to describe in a wrestling match what the victor would do when he defeated his opponents. What he would do is he would grab his, his opponent by the hair and jerk his neck back as if to say, if I had a knife, I could slit your throat, you're defenseless before me. And the writer of Hebrews says, when I come before God in his word, I want to be laid bare by his word. I want to be defenseless. I have no right to stand up and say, I deserve something better. Rather than that, I judge me as somebody whose only standing is mercy. Now on the basis of that, knowing that I'm the recipient of mercy, of course I accept myself. Of course my soul gets restored. And of course there's a sense in which I believe that I can take who I am and release that on behalf of others. And yes, I respect myself. And yes, I accept myself. But those are not the foundational things of my attitude toward myself. Rather, it's a humble gratitude for the mercy of God that releases me to give me for, to, for, for your sake. Rather than I hate me, I'm willing to stand before God on the basis of mercy. I'm willing to judge me and realize that I've been judged already in the cross, and therefore I'm acceptable. But I will survive. I will live with, with, with clenched fist. One of the metaphors that we're fond of using is that all of us need to identify that clenched fist that we have toward God. It's behind the homosexuality. It's behind the addiction. It's behind the depression. It's behind the poor self-image. There's a clenched fist which says, you've not done anything for me, and I've turned to you and you failed me. I hate you and I can't stand it, but I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it somehow. I'll make it against my parents. I'll make it against you trying to love me. I'm going to make it anyhow. I'll make it against this God who fails me in a thousand ways. I will survive And the ungodly structure, the fallen structure. Now changes to what? No longer I will survive with clenched fist, but now I really can live. And no matter what my circumstances, Philippians 4 again, the secret of contentment, no matter what my circumstances, no matter what's going on, there's always, now listen to this very carefully, there's always something I can do to achieve what, I, what I'm most passionate about. Let me tell you a story that describes what I mean. I tell this story with permission. Some of you might recognize what I'm talking about. A good friend of mine went through our program a number of years ago. Is now in private practice And um, I might get my timing mixed up, but maybe a year or so ago, a a client of his, um, who was very, very, um, very, very sick in lots of ways, came to his home one night about a year ago and unloaded a revolver into his into his home about 10 o'clock at night. And uh, a bullet went through, and uh, had he been sitting in a chair that he often sits in to read at late at night, 10 o'clock, he'd have been he'd have been shot. Nobody was injured, but the client unloaded the pistol into the home. And uh, the police were called, and she was taken away and put away. What has happened since then is um, she has she is now, after being put in a in a kind of a prison hospital type setting, now that she's been released, she is now suing my friend for malpractice. She's saying that I would never have done that had you been a competent counselor. Don't you all just wish you were plumbers? Or <laughs> he's basically in the middle of that right now. And a month or so ago, I was with him. We had a two-hour lunch that I found terribly encouraging, because um, in the middle of what is the biggest struggle of his adult life, I mean, he doesn't know what's going to happen here. In our crazy court system, you just don't know, and he's he's struggling. And he's hurting pretty bad over it. And he said to me, he said over lunch a month ago, he said, Larry, I've just tried to figure out what is to be my attitude toward the struggle of life. I find myself looking at God and saying, what have I done to deserve this? What's going on with me here? You know, have have I done something wrong? Why are you letting this happen to me? Don't you care? And he says, "I, I know that theologically he's good and the cross and all that, but doggone it, it doesn't seem to get into me right at the moment. And I'm struggling with it. I'm trying to figure out what is what is behind all this suffering. And he said, the first thought that occurs to me is that suffering is inevitable in a fallen world. And when that thought occurs to me, I say to myself, it's true, but there's no power to it. Doesn't help much. Well, we all suffer. Bad things happen. People get cancer in a fallen world. Planes crash in a fallen world. I find very little comfort in saying that. It's true. I don't argue with it, but... We're out of the garden, what can you expect? Build your city. Do it. Do what you can. Second thing he said was this: that um, that I know that somehow the tribulations that are coming into my life can do something to mature me. Is that still thrilling you? Yeah, you, know, you finally say, God, I think I'm satisfied with my maturity. I don't want any more. I'm content, you know, and not much, but I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, so let me just kind of coast until I get there. Turn off the heat of your love. Lewis said, God, couldn't you cut down your relentless love? That's always out to make me more like you. I'm satisfied with where I am if it means more pain to change. And that wasn't terribly helpful to him. And then he said he noticed something, a verse I think I mentioned maybe this morning or last night. When Saul was converted to Damascus Road and became Paul, he was told by a servant of God when God said to the servant, go to Paul and tell him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. What's that mean? It changed the perspective of my friend. If I say to you that um, my books are selling real well, every person in our family is healthy and walking with the Lord, and the ministry is going super, Isn't God good? Are you all moved? Are you all able to rejoice with me who's rejoicing? You just lost your job, your wife's sick, your kid's on drugs. Able to rejoice with me who's rejoicing? It's tough, isn't it? Suffering provides a unique opportunity to testify to the character of God. There's more power when a person who's suffering is able to say, I'm still willing to believe and to build my life on the conviction that God is good, there's more power when that man says it than when somebody who's very blessed says it. Don't you all feel a little bit like I do when someone says that the business is going very well, praise the Lord for the prophets? And your response is, I'm not sure if God has a whole lot to do with it, because if he does, why is he so discriminating in his blessings? When I tell you that I'm happily married, we just had our 25th anniversary, and we're really doing well, and you just got divorced, are you rejoicing? And you're sitting next to your husband or wife right now, and you're not getting along at all. You've got a zero sex life. You don't respect your husband. My wife respects me to some significant degree, and I love her very deeply. We have our problems, but we got a good marriage. You all rejoicing with me? What I'm suggesting is this, that everybody who is going to walk a godly life is going to what? suffer in some form it may not be physical it may not be a bad marriage It may not be bad money problems it may not be a lot of things in a lot of ways I'm very blessed but I want to suggest to you whatever power I have in my ministry has very little to do with the blessings I enjoy Whatever power I have in my ministry has to do with the fact that anybody who's honest, whether you're enjoying the blessings of good health, enough money, a nice wife, a nice family, anybody who's honest is willing to say that all of the good blessings of life don't take away the terror of what might be going on tomorrow. And don't take away some very deep aches in your soul, some very deep struggles that I go through that you'd never understand and I'd never understand yours. But is it possible in the middle of my struggles that when I testify to the good name of God that that's the way to encourage you? And is that why it's important for Christian leaders to start talking a little more honestly about their struggles so when they talk about the goodness of God and say, praise the Lord, it has a whole lot more power? Is that not the case? I really feel, frankly, a little embarrassed telling you about that bathroom story when I was four years old. I had it in my notes, and when I got to it, I kind of wanted to skip over it. And I thought, no, I'm going to tell you about that. I feel kind of stupid telling you about that. And I feel kind of stupid telling you about some other struggles in my life, and some, I'm not going to tell you, I think there's some room for discretion. Another word for self-protection, maybe there's a difference. But, but there's, there's ways in which my internal personal weirdness drives me nuts. And I just can't understand why after being a Christian for 40 years I'm not internally a little more normal. It drives me up the wall. And I've never done the real bad things. I've never been drunk a day in my life. Huh? Round of applause, anybody? <laughs> I've never smoked a cigarette. Not one. I once had a taste of beer. Folks, I'm Pat Boone. Dan is Frank Zappa. And maybe the externals are very different, but the internals aren't that different at all. And there's things inside of me that are just as weird as can be that I just wish were so different. Why should I continue? Do y'all feel like I have to quit every day? Oh, come on, where's the abundant life? Isn't there a victory in Jesus? Come on, you're more than conquerors, aren't you? Shape up. Maybe the basis for continuing really is that God is good. And maybe in the middle of honestly faced struggle, the decision to continue and to actually be nice to someone and to continue on in the ministry really reflects a commitment that God is good. And maybe when you see me, when I see you struggle, and I still see you remain faithful, then maybe I begin to get encouraged by the fact that there is a little more data that God really is good. I came away from my time with my friend who's being sued As he said to me, Larry, I'm, I'm actually getting excited about the fact that in the middle of the struggle I'm going through, and my wife knows the struggle I'm going through, that I can actually still come home at night and be kind to her because I really believe God is good. When he said that, something inside of me said, I'd like to live a little better life. He gave me a little bit of evidence, and folks, I see precious little of it. Look around the world. Give me the evidence that God is good. Tell me all the wonderful stories about how you were raised that prove that God is good. Tell me all the great things that are happening in all of our lives that prove to me that God is good. But show me somebody who's suffering, who's faithful. Somebody who's honest about their suffering, who enters into their pain, who says, I'm hurting so badly because I long for what is not there. I really am a woman, and I wish this relationship were going better. I'm dying inside in so many ways, and I wake up in the middle of the night, and I scream for hours, and yet I'm not trying to get rid of that pain. I'd love to, but I know someday the pain's going to go away, and in the meantime, I really believe in the middle of all this, God is somehow good, and I'm going to stick with Him. That has some power for me. That helps me change from a fallen structure to a godly structure. When my parents got the news that Bill was killed, Dad told me he went out into the backyard and he screamed at God for ten minutes. And then he said this, when God didn't repent, he decided he had one choice, but that's to trust him. Is God good when the plane goes down? Let him look it. Rather than saying, I will survive. No matter what's going on, I can live. Now, define life. No matter what's going on, tell me how bad your wife is. Tell me the struggles with physical illness that you have. Tell me about your lawsuits. And if my response is to say, well, just trust the Lord, then I'm just an insensitive idiot. But if my response is to weep with you and say, I've got different kinds of struggles, but I hurt too, let's cry together. And then, in the middle of that, somehow you're able to say to me, "But I can still live," and I'm going to say, "Well, what kind of life do you have married to her? What kind of life can you have married to him?" And you say, "Well, you have a wrong definition of life. What's your definition of life? Don't turn to it." But in First Timothy two ten or one one ten, I forget where it is in the Bible here, so I can't tell you. I think it's in First Timothy one ten, where Paul says that. Um, that life which has been hidden has now been brought to light in Christ Jesus. Eternal life, real life, true life, which, which up until this age has been hidden, has now been brought to light by Christ Jesus. What's life? Well, Jesus defined life when he said what? This is eternal life that, that you may be able to enjoy your husband. This is eternal life. Of course you long to enjoy your husband and you ought to long for that and you ought to hurt terribly if you can't. But some of you can't enjoy your husbands because you haven't got enjoyable husbands. Don't feel guilty about that. How can you enjoy an unenjoyable husband? you got unenjoyable kids. How can you enjoy them? You can't. They're awful. So how do you have life in the middle of having rotten kids that are just breaking your heart every day? Well, it all depends on your definition of life. The definition of life is to know God. And Jesus Christ, who now has sent. Then the definition of life, translated, I think, becomes something like this. That at any given moment, I can reflect in the way I live something about my confidence in the character of God. And when you're doing that, you're living by design. You're living life. That's the opposite of the fallen structure. Rather than, I will survive this world somehow. How am I going to survive this world? Come on, counselors, tell me how to endure this miserable situation. Deal with me in some form. Get me to make my life work a little better. What's the matter with you people? God is failing me. Oh, I'm trying. I'm trusting Him. No, the godly structure doesn't say I will survive somehow. The godly structure says I really can live no matter what's going on because nothing can separate me. Then your style of relating no longer is hiding what you're ashamed of and exhibiting what you hope will get a response. Now your style of relating is to move into any relationship wanting to communicate something of the character of God. We were in England a couple of years ago for a little sabbatical. And um, I remember thinking about a certain situation with, with our two boys. Two years ago, they were 19 and 21, or whatever it was. I remember thinking about um, a certain situation with the two boys and thinking that what these kids, these kids are being very let down by, by certain people. And I was very bothered by that. And I was getting all angry at, at certain people who I thought were letting my kids down and weren't moving toward them as I wished they were moving toward them. It's very mad. And then I thought, in the middle of a situation where my world is not working as, as I want it to on behalf of my kids, am I going to find some way just to handle this? Is there any way that I can live now? And I thought, well, I, I really can't arrange the world the way I want it to be arranged. But I don't need to because if God is good then somehow everything bottom line is alright is there any way that I can live meaning can I reflect God's character and I wrote each of my boys a letter a very unusual letter for me to write my letters are usually sermons making points helping them see things that they didn't quite get in their years of living with me in my home a couple of charts several copies to pass out to their friends you know this letter, I remember writing each of them just about a, a two or three sentence letter. I can't recall the exact words, but dear Ken, dear Kat, just sitting here thinking about you, just tell you, whoever you are, I accept you a bunch, love you a whole bunch, love pop. That's all I wrote. And each of them has said to me since then, they've never received a more important letter from me in their lives. I thought I'd preach some pretty good sermons. You see, whatever is happening, I can live, and therefore my style of relating must be to reflect the character of God. And the greatest difficulty in the world is when you feel nothing spontaneous within you, and you feel as empty as can be. Are you willing to make the choice to say that if God is good, maybe I can't give much because I'm not much, but I can give something. Is that your position? How do you go from an ungodly structure which supports the homosexual impulse and all the other difficulties to a godly structure which allows the struggles to continue but somehow joy comes? How do we move from the fallen structure to the godly structure? It's about seven minutes till. Let me leave it at that and invite Wes to come up, make a few announcements and we'll be out of here by nine o'clock. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.